Welcome to Music Business Mindset, a podcast where we're all about helping you find true and lasting success as an artist, build financial stability, and also develop your own personal wellness as an artist. My name is David Ryan Olson. I'm excited that you've joined me today. Today, we're covering a topic that is vital to, I would say, probably most people's music careers. If you are trying to be a a traditional artist or band, you got to be on the road. Maybe how to get on the road and tour more and play more shows has been on your mind as we're looking at maybe the world is uh, starting to get back to normal. Obviously, we'll see. I'm recording this about a month back in the middle of the Delta variant surge. So if it surged even more, (laughs) jokes on me, but got to be playing shows. You got to be touring. How do you do that most effectively? So today I'm excited that we've brought on Brandon Hughes, who has his own booking agency for artists. And so we wanted to talk to him about how to do that most effectively. So real excited for today's conversation. I learned a lot personally. Think you will as well. Real quick before we jump into the conversation, want to remind you about our free workshop that we've put together to help you find true and lasting success, financial stability, and happiness as an artist going forward. So, we're going to cover in this workshop the mindset that you need for success. We're going to talk about what most artists get wrong about fans and social media, what separates the artists who succeed from those who fail or burn out before they even get a chance to have their career get off the ground in the business model that's used by the happiest, most financially stable artists. And also going to be talking about David's hierarchy of leads, what the heck that is and how to use that to your advantage and how it will change the course of your music career. So go to Music Business Mindset dot com slash workshop to sign up for our free workshop on that. So now without further ado, let's just go ahead and jump into our conversation today with Brandon Hughes. All right. I'm here with Brandon Hughes. Dude, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm great, man. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be a part of this. Why don't you just go ahead and jump in and share your story? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll go back to the very beginning and day one, Brandon enters the music business. It was not something I had planned to do. It wasn't something I'd really thought about at that point, but it was freshman year of high school. I was taking some business classes and I sat down in class on the first day and my teacher said, Hey, I'm giving you guys your final project. And I was like, well, this is the first day that feels a little early, but all right. (laughs) And our project was to raise money for charity. That was the whole prompt. And so I raised my hand. I'm like, how? And she's like, figure it out. (laughs) Do something and make some money and then give it to charity and tell us how you did it. And that's your grade for the semester. So a lot of kids were like, oh, we're going to throw a bake sale or make T-shirts for the student section, like kind of what you would expect a high school student to do. And I told my teacher, I said, hey, I want to throw a benefit concert. I love music. That sounds fun. And she said that I should try to do something more realistic. (laughs) I immediately was like, great, cool. So now I'm definitely going to throw this benefit concert. Had no idea what I was doing. Just kind of fake it till you make it situation. Found some local bands in the small Indiana cornfield town that I lived in and got a space donated and found somebody to run sound for a steep charity show discount and threw a show and we raised $800 for a charity and I made the newspaper. And at that point I said, well, I've made it. (laughs) I am a music business entrepreneur. And I thought that was so cool. And so that was, that was day one. I thought I was going to be a big concert promoter for the rest of my life, which is, is not what I do now, but 
once the newspaper article ran, uh, a guy who threw some local like DIY like church shows gave me an opportunity to get involved with what he was doing. I would show up and sell merchandise for touring bands, be the local merch guy, just help them load gear into their van, just anything that I could possibly do to try and get people to remember me. And they're like, oh yeah, when we were through Indiana, there's that one kid that's always at the show helping us with random tasks that the promoter's sending. But I imagine that was also like a, a pretty good education just being around that many shows that early on. There's only so much about it you can like read in a book or on a blog post or whatever. Yeah, and in- Indiana has a really tough scene for kids to get involved in because all of the venues are 21 plus because of the alcohol laws. And so it's super challenging for young kids to even get involved in the scene in the first place. So I was lucky that I found a space to learn and just meet a lot of like local and regional bands. And so I spent a lot of high school doing that, traveling an hour to Indianapolis, uh, getting like my parents to drive me down so I could just be at a show and hang out. (laughs) And then I went to college and was very close to going to Tennessee and going to school for music business and studying that. And at the last minute, somebody that I did not know, just kind of a stranger in the music business, was talking to me at a show one time and made an incredibly compelling case on why I should not do that and why I should stay where I was at and make the most of the scene that I was in. Why's that? Kind of the whole like big fish, small pond, small fish, big pond type situation. And so I ended up staying and going to a state school. And honestly, that advice changed the trajectory of everything for me. I went to a school that was for math, science, engineering, like all these things that I'm not interested in have nothing to do with music. But there was an opportunity for an internship there to book shows for the university. And like legitimate commercial shows, I booked Brad Paisley, Panic at the Disco, Walk the Moon. Was this like with the student association or? Uh, yeah, it was similar to that, but it was it was connected with a arts presenting organization on campus too. And so we had people who their full-time job was to do talent buying show marketing And as a student, I got to learn how to like put together an offer and got to interact with agents and managers. And so that was just such an amazing experience to me get to learn like the big business, like the stuff beyond the DIY local scene that I had experienced. And so I learned a lot there. And while I was doing that, I was also managing a local band who I'd met and they just said, hey, will you help us book shows? And I said, well, I don't know how to do that but I'll figure it out because it sounds cool to tell people that I manage a band. (laughs) So they said, great, okay, first things first, in two months we have a show in California. And again, this band is in Indiana. And they're like, we booked a show in California, can you get us there and back? (laughs) And I was like, sure, why not? And so I just DIY Googled venues, emailed them, sent them way too long of emails, like one Word document page, at least length emails, trying to convince them to bring this band that nobody in Tucson, Arizona had heard of, but I was convincing the venue in Tucson that they should play. So you literally just like opened up a map and were like, okay, what's like the next city hop closer? And then, yeah. Okay. (laughs) That was the moment that I realized that I loved booking because I also really loved geography. When I was a kid, I would help my parents plan trips and I would, we used an atlas, which makes me sound way older than I am. (laughs) But my mom loves atlases. We get her one for Christmas as a joke every few years. But I love maps and like planning how are we going to get from A to B. And so doing that in a way that also makes concerts come into existence to me was like magic. It's like, I can't imagine this is a job. So we we did that. It was like a 30-date tour going from Indiana to California and back with this band who, again, had like never played outside of their home state. 
and we somehow made money. I don't know how, looking back at it, it is a miracle that we came back not in the red, but it happened. So you booked 30 shows in less than two months, and you made money. <laughs> what the crap? <laughs> Honestly, I mean, we had, a, we had a show at a college that really saved the tour budget. But at the same time, it was it was a lot of Facebook messaging people saying, hey, can we throw a concert here? The band would bring their own sound system, which is pretty out of the ordinary. And so we could set up concerts in places that weren't even equipped for it. So sometimes it was just convincing a restaurant, hey, you know what would be cool? What if there was a band playing for an hour on Friday night? And they were like, oh, cool, we'll give you a couple hundred bucks to do that. Right. This was summer, I take it? It was August and September. Okay, so the weather was still, like, pretty good. Right. And when I, when I say that they made money, I also am counting in merch sales. It's not me convincing somebody to book a random band for $500 a night. The band was exceptionally talented, and so when they would play, people would buy shirts and CDs, and that also made things pretty easy. But yeah, so we, we did that tour. I fell in love with booking, and I booked that band uh, throughout the rest of college and decided that that was the direction I wanted to go. And so I started reaching out to some agents that I'd met through the talent buying for the university and saying, hey, I'd love to do what you do. Can we set up a time to talk on the phone? And started doing what I called like an informational interview, just learning what somebody does. And when you're a student, professionals are a lot more receptive to that than when you're not. <laughs> and so I was like, well, this is the time to get somebody who will probably not respond to my email in two years to talk to me now. Playing the student card works. Oh, absolutely. If you're a student and you're listening to this, like reach out to your heroes and the people that are just the best at what you do. If there's ever a time they're going to respond to you, it's probably now. But yeah, so we did some calls, me and, and different agents, and I got a couple interviews and ended up getting an opportunity to move to Chicago and work at a really cool boutique booking agency called Monterey International. And I got that job via a guy who had also worked at the campus booking concerts. And so I, I knew him and I figured I would go somewhere where I know somebody. And Chicago wasn't too far from home, so that made it a little easier. Instead of going out to Los Angeles and working in a mail room, which did not sound appealing. So I came to Chicago and I worked at Monterey. If you're not familiar with Monterey, it's like a mid-sized agency, probably about 40 people. Worked with a lot of roots and blues and bluegrass and jam. And to me, I, I say to people my age who don't know a lot of those artists, I'm like, it's, it's a lot of things that your parents are probably super into. My parents were stoked because we worked with like Van Morrison and Steve Miller Band. <laughs> I, I grew up on classic rock. And so I was also really stoked about working with clients in that lane. But all in all, it was an amazing place to learn. And so I got to work with a, a few agents there who all had different work styles. And I got to see what I loved about the business and what I hated about the business and just decide what kind of agent I would want to be in the far off future whenever that happened, which just felt like this, this thing that would get here way later in life. But after a few years, Monterey was acquired by a bigger agency called Paradigm, which books probably most of the bands that you know. <laughs> they book Coldplay and Sheeran, Imagine Dragons, all the cool developing bands, the Walk the Moons and Hippo Campuses. And I worked there for a while. And then at the beginning of 2019, uh, made the choice to start the company that I work at now, which is called Revel Talent Alliance. 
And what was different about Revel is I made the leap into being an agent. I took the knowledge I'd learned working at those companies that I just mentioned and, and combined it with a little bit of self-starting and filling in the gaps, teaching myself what I, what I needed to learn. And really diving in on what I call developmental booking, which is getting in with an artist at the earliest point of their career that I can and creating a foundation and like a sustainable touring business, which is how I think artists can can make a living and quit their day jobs and do what they love is through smart, well-planned and executed touring. Mm-hmm. I'm really stoked that you said sustainable touring businesses because I've seen touring easily become just a way of like killing your soul. <laughs> right? Like I've spent some time as as a hired gun on the road and it's just exhausting. I mean, I only played probably like a quarter of the dates with the group. Even that was exhausting for me and I saw like, you know, how tiring it is to play 200 shows a year driving 100,000 miles a year, like all that type of stuff. And then you're still like barely scraping by. I mean, like, yeah, you're, you're living, but like, it feels like you're not, it's like, man, we should be making more for busting our butt. Yeah. So can you just kind of jump in and give a bird's eye view of what a sustainable touring business looks like? And that's a big question. So feel free to break that down into like phases if you need to. Yeah. And I, I think so many people would have so many opinions of what that looks like. But to me, sustainable touring is built over a couple years. It's not something that you just instantly pick up a guitar, write a couple songs, and then you're making a living off of playing shows. I'm sure that's happened for somebody, but it's it's not the way that I see things built or that I try to build them. But to me, it's it's dialing in who your audience is, where are they at, and how do you get in front of them and then get them to come back and see you again? And who are you working with to execute that? To me, it's all relationships driven. I see so many artists succeed because they align with the right promoter or the right venue who will invest in them and help them create something special in whatever area that promoter works in. So if there's somebody who books shows all over Ohio, and you're, you're based in Indiana, what you got to do is you need to find that Ohio promoter and get them excited and caring about what you're doing so that they'll put you on their festival and then bring you back to play at their venue and you sell out the small venue and then you work with them to find the right act to help you go into the bigger venue. And you build that and you cultivate a fan base through that. And then you also learn how to activate that fan base through, I mean, getting them to sign up for an email list or whatever way you stay in touch with them so they know when you're coming back. And if you're putting on a good show, people are going to buy the ticket and come see you again. Mm -hmm. Well, but how do you even find those people in the first place that are willing to invest into you? Well, that's that's my job is to know those people. (laughs) So everyone go and hire Brandon. (laughs) Yes, hire me. And so for me, I mean, it's just been over the course of lots of years getting to know these people as I'm, I'm booking tours, I'm sending shows different places, I'll, I'll connect with these buyers and I'll know, okay, this person works in this space and does well there and this person does this other lane and helping an artist know who they should be working with. But obviously not every artist has someone like me or an, an equivalent. And so that takes a lot of just, I mean, internet research, go and look and see if you're a a bluegrass band, 
go and look at who the bluegrass acts that are a couple steps ahead of you. Go and look and see what promoters they're working with on their tour. And then reach out to those promoters and say, hey, I saw you work with this act and this act and this act. I'm trying to build something in that same lane. I'd love for you to listen to the song that I just put out. If you care about it, hopefully we can work together in some capacity. And if the promoter's into it, then that's gold. If they're excited and they want to invest into you, that's a relationship that you should take care of and that you should invest back in and, and everybody wins. Right. So, but let's say you're you're just kind of starting out. Maybe you're playing some local shows. Maybe you're playing a lot of happy hours or whatever in your town, or you're you're opening for your friends' bands at like a bigger club or something. But you haven't quite figured out how to start booking shows and tours and getting out of your hometown, though. How would you start approaching that and start finding relationships that would help you do that in the first place? Uh, I would say step one before you even make an attempt to go play outside of your hometown is to make sure that what you've built in your hometown is taken care of. I tell bands that I don't think they should be touring until they can sell 150 to 200 tickets where they live. If you're not at that point yet, then you need to be focusing your efforts into what can you be doing locally, whether it's going and playing those open mics and happy hours or opening up for other artists that come in. So if, if you're an artist and you're in your hometown and you don't know what steps you should be taking to build, connect, find that promoter where you live that is going to care about what you're doing before you're looking for the promoters elsewhere and get them to offer you opportunities as a local support act when a bigger artist comes in. At this point, I would start kind of going into different marketing ideas, which is a little outside of my lane. But there are lots of things, whether it's just investing in digital marketing that's geo-targeted to where you're at, playing like the free concerts in your town, like the the street festivals or the concerts in the park, those usually pay pretty well anyway, but they're also a great opportunity to get in front of people. And then going back to what I said about trying to find ways to reconnect with your fans, whether it's uh, making a call to action, trying to get them to follow your Instagram page or whatever social media you're most prevalent on, or getting them to follow your bands in town or sign up for an email list. You need to find a way for them to know when you're playing your next show. Instead of them just going, wow, that was really good. I'd love to see that again. I wish I knew how. Make it easier for them to know that you're playing again and that they can come see you again. Yeah. So I know a lot of artists that are just trying to get established feel like they don't quite have enough cred to reach out to a, a promoter or a booking person, either in town or regionally or whatever. At what point is that like a smart move? When's too early to like, you know, reach out to maybe a local promoter? for these kinds of things. I think if you haven't played a show yet or you've only played maybe one or two shows, it's probably too early. Before you're going to them, you want to make sure that your live show is something that is good, it is intentional, it's something that you're proud to show other people. If you're still trying to get your feet under you and and learn, oh, okay, are we going to have a bass player? Are we going to have bass tracked? Do we have more than three songs? Some artists have one or two originals and then they're playing covers for the rest of the night. You should probably write some more material before you're trying to get the promoter to start sending opportunities your way. The first step in building the promoter relationship is probably being an opening act for one of their shows. And if it's somebody who works in a smaller venue, maybe a two to 300 person venue, they're going to be counting on you to be able to bring at least 25 to 30 people if they put you on a show. So if you know, oh, okay, well, my mom will come and... Maybe my brother will show up and two or three of my friends. That's five tickets that you can count on. You probably need to kind of network and 
do some more of those open mic shows and free events to try and build some fans up until you feel like you're confident that you could sell 25, 30 tickets to a show. And then at that point, it's going to be beneficial to reach out to the promoter because you're going, hey, I have some value I can offer you. Will you offer something back? So, yeah, on the subject of offering value to someone, when you start reaching out to promoters, venues, etc., how do you get their attention the best? Sure. First of all, if you are writing an email to them, you want to make it very short. (laughs) When I open up my inbox... I know when I'm getting an email from a local band because it normally takes me about 10 minutes to read (laughs) because it's always really long and has way more information than I need. So the first recommendation I have is make your email short, sweet, and to the point. Write the kind of email that you would want to receive because if anybody receives too many emails in the world, it's promoters and talent buyers. So make it easy for them to say yes to you. Give them a really quick background on you, like one to two sentences about your project and what you sound like. Give them a link to listen to you, whether it's Bandcamp or YouTube or Spotify. Give them a link to one song. Don't give them like a whole album or 10 songs to listen to. Just give them one song to start with. If they're interested, they can ask for more or look it up. That'd be the first thing. It's just like a short, sweet, to the point email. And then be patient with them. They're probably not going to respond to you the first day. But maybe wait a week or two if you haven't heard back from them, send them another note. If they don't get back to you, they might not be interested. But that doesn't mean that they won't be later. And just keep building what you're doing. Share some updates with them. Say, hey, I just played this show with so-and-so. It went really great. Here's a link to a video from the show if you want to see what we sound like. And just keep building and eventually they'll get on board or they won't and they're not the person to work with for you and and you should find someone else. Well, I would imagine you also kind of have to tailor your messaging to the kind of person you're reaching out to. Like, for instance, if you're reaching out to like a bar or a club where that's like the primary thing they're trying to sell is booze at the at the counter. Being able to actually bring out a crowd is important versus like some other sort of venue. I'm drawing a blank on what another example might be. There's all sorts of like all ages venues that don't sell booze. And you could say, hey, we bring out a bunch of 21 plus people who are going to buy a bunch of beer. And they go, well, we don't have a bar. So that doesn't matter to us. (laughs) Yeah. Or I don't know. Maybe you have rich friends or something. It's like, yeah, all of our friends are rich. So like, well, no. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't seen that in a pitch email yet. <laughs> I'm not sure how I would respond, but I guess what I'm trying to get at is like, think about like, what does that venue or promoter want? Right. So what are some of the things that different venues or promoters might want? What's kind of your, your intuition there? This is interesting because I, my job is to always sell, sell bands to them. So I guess I just think, what am I presenting to people that makes them want to buy what I'm selling? Sometimes it's just that the music is super good and I'm coming in and I'm saying, hey, this band might not have the fan base yet, but if you listen to it, hopefully you'll see where it's going in the way that I do. And so that's one thing is just if you believe in your music and you think it's really good, a promoter might too. And that could be the thing. But also they have bills to pay and just booking a band that sounds really good doesn't necessarily always pay their bills. So being able to sell tickets, like I mentioned Some other things that aren't ticket related. Uh, Somebody who is very easy to work with from a production standpoint. You show up on time. You get your stuff on stage. You're friendly and cooperative with the sound person. When your set is over, you're tearing your stuff down. 
you're being respectful when you're there, you're inviting friends out. Also, a lot of promoters I have heard really care about seeing bands come out to their shows, at least on a local basis. So if you are in your hometown and you're trying to connect with a promoter, go to shows at their venue. Like be present, support other bands that are also from around town. And if they see that you're there and you are networking and you're being supportive, that is going to strike a positive chord with them. And then also they want to work with people who are are nice and friendly and and good people and people around town like them. Um, So if if you have a bad reputation around town, promoters are going to kind of steer clear. Mm, No, that's totally true. Word gets out about people, especially like if you're playing locally, because people like to talk and they say, oh, that one band they showed up late, you know, they they were just drunk by the time they showed up. They were kind of dicks and all that. Like that will definitely come back to bite you. It can even be small things like there's there's show etiquette, even as far as like, oh, you shouldn't sell merchandise while another band is playing because you're taking away their opportunity to play in front of those fans. Some people aren't sticklers about that rule, but to other people, that's that's a big no-no. Learn some basic show etiquette. Talk to some people who have, have toured if you don't know what some of those those things are and make sure that you do those things too so that you're you're the kind of band people want to invite to be on shows or perform with them if they're the promoter. Yeah, I imagine a lot of bands, especially starting out, get opportunities because they are a band or an artist that people want to just hang out with. How many of artists that you've seen kind of get their start that way just because they weren't even necessarily intentional about trying to write millions of cold emails? They were just cool. There was an artist that I was pursuing and, and looking at signing in the past couple months that I I found their song. It was actually, I would say, the earliest that I've ever looked at signing something. They had two songs out and barely any following. And I reached out to a few people in the town that that band was from. And I said, hey, what do you know about this band? I'm trying to do my research. And the first thing every person said to me was, oh, that singer is like a good hang. He's a cool person. Everybody in town loves that guy, just a super likable guy. And I was like, great. That is a relief because whenever somebody works like that, they get opportunities. People just want to support them. So yeah, I, I think a lot of artists get their start that way of just being present and making friends with people and being a, a person that other people can root for. Because when when you're trying to make those steps from non-artist to being a, a DIY artist to being a local and regional and eventually successful commercial touring artist you want people to want to root for you if you're somebody that people are like oh that that person is is no fun and i'm really disappointed to see them succeeding they're not going to want to go to bat for you and help you out which you're going to need people to take chances on you early on as you're getting established you could have the greatest songs but people will look past that because you know no one cares about someone who's a quote-unquote nobody you gotta like give them a reason to actually like want to step up to bat for you. Songs are only half of that, right? <laughs> right. And you're when you're in that phase, you're in a position where there are so many people competing against you for a very limited amount of space. Especially post-COVID. Absolutely. There's so few opportunities compared to the amount of people that want those opportunities. And that's always been a problem. And it's even more of a problem now. And so the people making those decisions, whether it is an agent trying to decide what act to sign, talent buyer trying to decide who to put on their festival, they're looking for reasons to knock people off the list and knock it down. And so try and have as few red flags as you can and as many 
positive things going for you, like these things we've mentioned, to make it easier for you to cut through and, and take that opportunity that so many other people are chasing. I'd love to start talking some more specifics about what designing a sustainable tour and a sustainable touring business looks like. So let's just say, okay, we're going to make the leap. We're going to do a regional tour. We're going to do a West Coast tour. We're going to do a South tour or something. What would be the first steps in actually like trying to turn that into a reality be? Yeah. Can I do like a case study, talk about a couple of my artists that we've we've done some strategies with? Yeah, absolutely. So my first one that I always bring up is when I started the agency, I started with two artists and and really wanted to get proof of concept before I signed some other artists. And so I took two of them and created what I consider to be a, a pretty sustainable build. But the first one was this artist, Michigander, which is how I connected with Jake Rye, who connected us together. So uh, lots of amazing things have come into be because of, of working on that project. But most importantly, just a great friendship. Jason is a great guy. If, if you've ever seen Jason Michigander, if you've ever seen his project or listened, if you're listening and you're not familiar, uh, go check out his record. Great show, too. Yes. But I started working with Michigander at the point where I think there was one song out, really that whole, okay, what's step one, step two here? So the strategy that we built was Jason is a friendly guy, a guy that people want to root for, a lot of these things that we mentioned earlier. And so he was building something amazing in Michigan already. He was getting people to come out and see his shows. He was hustling pre-sale tickets. He was getting local bands to include him in their their bills. And he was, he was building real fans in Michigan. He had that down pat. And so where I came in is how do we replicate this in other places? And so the strategy that we used was let's pick five cities that are within a five, six hour drive of where he's based, which at that point he was in Kalamazoo. And we're going to make it to where we can sell 150 to 200 tickets in those cities. We had built to where we could do that in Michigan. Let's do it in Chicago, Indianapolis, Columbus, Davenport, Iowa was one that we really dialed in on. And so let's build there. And so we were going and we were doing whatever opportunity we could get. We would find a band who was playing there and we would message them and say, hey, can we open your show? A lot of people would say no because they're like, what are we getting out of this? We're just putting you on the show. <laughs> it was a kind of a law of numbers of just reaching out to a bunch of artists to find the first opportunities. And so we do those. We would do these shows with a company called So Far Sounds, uh, which are these really amazing concerts in unconventional places where people buy a ticket and they don't know who they're going to see. And so those shows kind of sell themselves. And you just show up and play to 50 people who are excited to find new music, which is an awesome thing for somebody in that position. And so we would do those in Chicago and Indianapolis and Ohio and play those those free events to just get in front of people. And so we did that for a year, a year and a half. And then we went back and we played some headline shows and we got some cool openers who were from town and we knew could sell that 25 to 30 tickets. Then we hustled and sold out a lot of small venues like Shuba's in Chicago, the Raccoon Motel in Davenport, Iowa, which is a tremendous venue that is making a comeback and I'm thrilled to see it returning after COVID, just shout out to Raccoon Motel and Sean. And so we, we built that. It was money coming into the project. It was a build for the profile. And after we had 
those venues and cities kind of secured that we knew, hey, we can play here, we can do business. Then we took that to some larger artists that we were interested in playing some shows with. And we said, hey, you're going on tour, you're playing 10, 12 cities around. Five of them are places that we can sell out these small venues. Let us sell those tickets for you on your tour. But in exchange, will you take us on that whole run? So with Michigander, we got a couple opportunities to open some bigger shows, go out, play bigger rooms than we would normally play. And he's just so talented. And again, a, a person that you can root for that fans saw that. They said, I've never heard this project before, but now it's one of my favorite things. At that point, now we have fans in 10, 12 cities. And all the while, he's doing things to build his Spotify presence and and putting out good music and marketing it the right way outside of touring. And so all of that really comes together into the foundation for what the project is now. And so we built that and then festivals started calling and he just played Lollapalooza uh, a couple weeks ago. Yeah. So it, it almost sounds like what you're describing, the business model is play in your hometown and then it's like an expanding circle from there to a certain degree. You're getting really dense and solid, like in this one little tiny core. You expand, you're not necessarily selling out. You may even take a little bit of a loss. I mean, like hopefully not, but you're viewing it as an investment. Even if you're getting 10 people there, that's still, you have to invest in that market before it starts returning on you. By the time that you've ramped that up, then you expand a little more and then use that as proof of concept to start negotiating bigger opportunities. Yeah. And if you can do that, like with Michigander, like I said, we built in Chicago to the point where we sold out Shubas. We go, okay, this took us two shows to get here. I can go to a promoter in Richmond, Virginia, and I say, hey, look at what we did in this time frame in Chicago. Let's replicate that here. And I'm showing them a roadmap on how we're going to get to a sold out show. And that's exactly what they want. That's their job to fill their venues and sell tickets. And so I'm coming to them with the plan of how we did it there and how are we going to do it here. So just from like a budgeting standpoint, like how many times do you have to play a market before it really becomes profitable? Ooh. Like, obviously, like it varies. Yeah. How good is your band? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> that's a great question. It, it definitely varies. But it's also being strategic with what opportunities you're taking. Because if you have an opportunity to go play a house show with maybe a band who's playing their first show ever in town, you're probably driving there to make $10 and play in front of their friends and family who are there because they want to support their friend, not because they love going to concerts. Versus playing at, I don't know, maybe it's one of those concert in the parks where you're playing to a lot of people's grandparents in lawn chairs who are just excited to be outside. But maybe some of those grandparents drag their grandkids along and they actually like going to shows. And so you're playing in front of a thousand people, but you're making maybe 50 fans. That's kind of a better opportunity. Yeah, but spoiler, retirees live for music and have money. Oh, trust me. I, I've been having to make this uh, this case to some of my artists who... <laughs> Sometimes questioning, why why are we at this thing again? And then <laughs> they call me after the show and they're like, hey, we had the best merch sales of tour tonight. And I was like, exactly. Everyone wants to be popular amongst the teens and, and young people, but the teens and young people don't spend as much money as the older people. Yeah, every fan brings something to the table. If you're making music that you care about, you should want everybody to care about it, not just a certain demographic and, and age range, you know? And that's that's not to say don't know your brand and don't know, like, you know, who your core fans are. That's more to say don't just discount people because they're not 
cool. Yeah, I definitely know which of my artists can succeed in that space and which of them would scare away the grandparents. Also, that makes it sound like I I book a bunch of shows with people playing in front of people's grandparents. (laughs) That's not the only show that there is, but don't skip those bands. They can be good. Anyway, I got sidetracked. I forgot what my case was that I was starting to make. Oh, no, just I was asking about like, at, at what point can you start to see a little bit of return on investment in a market versus you just like say, this market's not working for us. We're not the right sound or we're not good or you know whatever. To me, I try and make my artists go play two shows that are the sole purpose is getting in front of fans before I have them play a show where the intent is, let's see how many fans we can sell a ticket to. You want to make the right first impression. And so if you're not confident that you're going to be able to sell some tickets there, it's probably not good taking up space on a venue's calendar because if the show tanks, they might not want to bring you back. There's lots of shows that you can get in front of people with. But again, trying to find a way to maybe open up for a, a bigger artist, especially if you have like a friend that's in a band that you know can sell tickets in a town two hours away, getting them to let you open up on their show is probably a worthwhile investment. Right. I've heard people talk about, oh yeah, we played our first show in the town that's two hours away or whatever. And it was like kind of lame because two people showed up. I mean, like exaggerating. And then they're just like discouraged about that. And it's like, well, this is your first time going out there. Like (laughs) you can't expect to necessarily just like sell tickets in a new market right away or even have people out to your show at a free show right away. Right. And so that's finding where are the fans already at? If it's your first time in town and everybody involved is banking on you to bring out the whole crowd, that's a recipe for disaster. And that goes back to if you're in that position where you're reaching out and you're finding a a promoter and talent buyer that cares about your band and invests, they know their town better than you do. And so you go, hey, I really want to come play. I need to build a fan base there. Is there any like event or concert series or place that you'd recommend I play to get my foot in the door? And if they're not ready to book you to play one of their venues and they're interested in what you're doing, hopefully they'll give you an intentional recommendation of, oh, well, we have the the taste of whatever festival that every town has. And that has however many thousands of people each night. And you can go play there for an hour and they'll pay you 500 bucks, which is two hours away. That's covering your gas in a hotel. So that's a pretty good payout. And then you're playing in front of a bunch of people and you have a little booth set up and you're selling CDs and T-shirts and making some fans and then you come back and hopefully those people are coming to see you again. Right. So as you're, as you're working these newer markets financially, what should you be shooting for? Like I get the vibe. You're not a big fan of, you know, paying for the opportunity to play. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. (laughs) But you're obviously not going to be getting like a $10,000 guarantee, (laughs) you know? So like, what are you kind of shooting for in terms of like what the venue could give you versus like how much is coming from merch sales or, or whatever. What What's kind of the financial game plan for that earlier stage where you're just building up a market? First thing, I don't think the band should ever play for free. There may be a couple instances where it's just such an like outrageously good opportunity that maybe it's worth it. But for the most part, anytime I've ever seen somebody go, oh, well, you can come play here, but we can't pay you. It normally ends up being a bad show anyway but then it's a bad show that you're not getting paid for, which makes it worse. So I don't think that bands should ever take unpaid opportunities, even if it's just asking them for gas money in exchange for coming to play if they originally start asking you to play for free. What about in your local town, though? 
like happy hour gigs or whatever at like a local like restaurant. I guess that's that's a little different doing the the happy hour and the the open mic opportunities. Those are marketing and promotional investments on your end and your overhead is really low. I would categorize those a little different than a show. I put that in like a showcase category. But yeah, when you're originally looking to play a show, I mean, I think every band should be getting at least like 100 to 200 dollars on a show. Mhm. Real quick, though, maybe we should define the difference between a gig and a show. Yeah, if you're being expected to bring out people to the show, it's a situation where they're going, hey, we need you to bring out your fans and your friends and whoever. Obviously, they're expecting some kind of return from those people being there, so you should be getting compensated. Versus if you're just showing up to try and make some new fans at a a restaurant happy hour type situation and you're bringing your guitar and you're singing two or three songs... Uh, that's maybe a different situation. That's a fine line because I even still think if an artist, a restaurant is using a happy hour to draw customers in, they should still be paying the artists. But I understand that that's just not the reality of most places. That's a whole different, <laughs> a whole different situation. <laughs> Going back to artists, I guess the question is kind of how do you value yourself and and how do you present that value to somebody in exchange for compensation for your art? I would say. If you know that you can draw fans on, you go, okay, we can bring 50 people, we can bring 100 people, we can bring 10 people, whatever the number is, assessing what that financial number should be. If you could sell $110 tickets, that's $1,000 in revenue. The venue needs to cover some of its costs. At a smaller venue, is probably a couple hundred bucks. So, I mean, you should probably be getting paid $500 for a show if you're somebody who can sell 100 tickets. If you're somebody who can sell 10 tickets then you're probably not bringing a lot of financial value to whatever the opportunity is. So maybe in that situation, you're being paid $100, $200. But I guess, I, I don't know, my advice is if you're a band and you have an opportunity is feel out their budget anyway. Don't come in guns blazing. This is our right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I had an artist who I was pitching to a university to perform and I won't say like the specific numbers, but I, I told the university, hey, I need this much money for this artist to come play. Let me know if you can do it. And in the meantime, while the university was kind of waiting on my email response, they had also messaged the band on Facebook and said, hey, we want you to come play on this date for the students. And the band responded and said, great, can we get this much money? And they quoted them one tenth of what I did. <laughs> So the university came back to me and said, hey, the band said they can do it for this. Let's lock it in. (laughs) So I had to tell the band that they lost out on 90% of that potential show revenue, (laughs) which was was a lesson learned for everybody. The first one is don't have your band's book shows through Facebook. If you're a a manager or an agent, have them send everything to you instead of trying to handle it on their own. That was like the first couple months of me doing this, like back in college. That was not a recent thing. (laughs) Also, try and feel out what uh, somebody's budget is when they ask you to play instead of just throwing out a a low number because you could be missing out on a lot of money to invest into your project. Right. Yeah, I, I guess I know just a lot of people kind of struggle with knowing how much to try to get for being compensated for playing the show versus like, you know, is it an opportunity to build fans, to sell merch and all of that. And just like trying to just get your advice for how to strike that balance. Yeah. I mean, I, I still, to this day, sometimes scratch my head on trying to decide where to value one of my artists that tour full time, something 
cool happens. Uh, I had three artists perform at Lollapalooza this year, which was such an amazing, just an amazing weekend to see so many people get to live their dreams out. And then Monday after the festival rolled around and I'm looking at my pitch sheet that I send to people to try and get them to book my bands and me going, okay, well, how is this going to impact the price for these artists now that they've done this high profile situation? And I don't know that I think that there's any hard set rule to that. I wish I had a more clear answer for the artists who are trying to decide what they're worth. <laughs> Figure it out. Free market, market value. <laughs> if you get paid like $500 to play a show in town, the next time that somebody reaches out to book you for $150, maybe the rate should be 500 now because that's what you're starting to get, at least within reason. If some rich kid books you for their graduation party for $10,000, you probably can't ask the bar down the street to pay you $10,000. <laughs> but... Yeah, you'll see. People will notice what a band is doing, and if they're excited about it, they'll start offering more money to bring them in. And a lot of that really does correlate with ticket sales, but doing other things, like if you're getting a really good press look or, again, getting an opportunity. Obviously, not every band is like playing Lollapalooza, but anything that really helps establish your credibility can impact your price. And there's no harm in trying to negotiate on your behalf and get the best deal. Yeah. Can you maybe demystify what a booking agent is just a little bit? Maybe how that differs with, say, a tour manager or, you know, some sort of other manager for the group. Is it purely just someone who's writing the emails for you or is there more than that? Yes and yes. (laughs) (laughs) Send emails all day. That is... 99% of my job, it's a sales job. It is fielding inquiries from people who want to hire an artist to perform. And then it is also me going out and finding people and telling them why they should hire the band. So a booking agent just at its core is somebody who's in charge of getting talent, the opportunity to go perform, making sure they're getting paid fairly and Some other things that I do with that is I handle the contracts for every show. I draft them, review all the red lines and changes and all that. I keep track of sales. So I send a report to each of my artists saying, hey, here's how your tour is selling. So you know what shows to market, what shows are doing really well. I also collect deposits just for security sake for the artists. So if they're performing at some kind of show, I'll take a certain percentage up front. That percentage can vary. I don't want to commit to a certain percentage on this that way in case I'm, I'm asking somebody for one percentage they go hey I listen to that podcast and I heard you only charge this yeah. <laughs> so logistically pretty much every booking agent is going to make 10 percent of whatever the artist makes from the the fee we are not paid based on merch sales or any of those other revenue streams it's just explicitly what are you getting paid by the venue to perform that's my business that's what i do so you're not the person that's out there calling the venues as they're rolling up you're not making sure they have merch i'm not supposed to be i can't say that <laughs> it hasn't happened but <laughs> some of my bands don't call on me for some some extracurricular asks but part of being an independent agent at a smaller agency is i go above and beyond a lot of times and Sometimes my bands will ask me to do something that's not my job, but I'm not just here to make money. I'm here to see them succeed, and they're all artists that I really care about. So if you're going, hey, can you help us uh, with this merchandise thing? Or when my bands play Chicago, if they're a smaller artist who's playing a smaller venue, a lot of times I end up being the merch guy, (laughs) which I like doing. It's a lot of fun. 
But if you're a band and you hire a booking agent, don't explicitly go ask them to run merch. That's not their job. Yeah. <laughs> if they ask, maybe it's just them wanting to relive the golden days of being the merch guy. Yeah. <laughs> the glam of trying to track down the Sharpies and, you know, all that. <laughs> Like, I swear the square reader was just over here. (laughs) No one knows where the square reader is. So I know a lot of artists that are working on getting more established would say, oh, man, we could just really, you know, pour gas on this fire if we could just get a booking agent. But not every band is ready for a booking agent. As great as it would be to just like, you know, from day one, be able to delegate the whole emailing and knowing people. At what point is that actually like a logical step? to start looking for a booking agent? A lot of agents would have different answers to this. What I would say I want to see an artist do prior to trying to bring me onto the team is have at least one record's worth of music ready to go. It doesn't have to necessarily be released. Maybe you've put out one song, but at least have an album's worth of material ready. A set. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, if you can play at least 45 minutes. If you can't play 45 minutes worth of music, it makes my job incredibly difficult to help you. 45 minutes is great. If you can play longer than that, there's a lot of opportunities for bands that can play an hour or more. I've played some three-hour shows, by the way. (laughs) That sounds brutal. Like I said, the agency that I worked at before did a lot of jam and bluegrass, and I would look at the set times. I'm like, you're telling me you're playing how many hours? That's insane. But other things that you can do are build in your hometown to where you can sell 200 tickets. If a band is not at the point where they can sell out 150 to 200 person venue in their hometown, in my opinion, it is too early for me to start trying to sell what they're doing to other places. And I personally prefer that they have a manager in place. It's not a requirement. I work with artists who are self-managing And those artists that I work with, they're self-managing. It's because they have learned the biz and know a lot of things that maybe a young starting manager would know anyway. If they're listening to your podcast, they probably fall into that category of somebody who is music business savvy or trying to be. So someone who knows the biz that I can work hand in hand with. Unfortunately, so many artists are looking for somebody to row the boat for them, and the boat's not going to get very far if only one person's rowing. A good team, everybody is trying to push it forward, and then having a manager is somebody to point the ship in the right direction. And so that helps. I know what I want to see happen for each artist when I sign them. Having a manager who can can challenge my strategy and and my opinions and, and help me do my job better is going to be a, a succeeding combo for the artist. So I think having a manager in play is, is really key before you have an agent, but it's not a requirement. Mm-hmm. What I hear you saying is like, you know, some proof of concept and some initiative on the band's part, because you can't do all the work for them and you have limited time and mental bandwidth that you would have to be completely enamored with the band to like take a giant gamble on them. Yes. And There have been artists that I signed before they could sell very many tickets in those very select situations. It was, I heard some music and I thought, this is unbelievable. And then I connected with the artists and I found out that they were also just unbelievable as people, people that I wanted to root for. I was going to lose sleep if they didn't achieve their dream. And so I got involved early. I mean, that's a unique situation, but it's, it's an amazing thing to find when you're in my position, somebody that you think has a winning work ethic and 
a winning personality and is a good person you want to see to succeed who is also just ridiculously talented. Because unfortunately, I find so many people who are one of those things and not all of them. Honestly, I mean, I would say that every artist I work with, I feel like falls into that category. Obviously, I'm going to think super highly of the artists I work with. <laughs> but I think they're all they're all tremendous people that I, I know represent what I do really well. And, and I'm honored to work with them as people, but also as artists because they make great music, which are both incredibly subjective things for me to say are metrics. So I don't know if you reach out to me and I'm not a good fit. Maybe there's an agent who would feel that way about your project so there's lots of agents right so say someone is trying to get more business savvy they've got the drive but they haven't quite like you know figure out how to like start showing some promise yet what resources would you point them to to really start getting their shit together touring or otherwise i think one of the best things that you can do is try and learn from examples of artists that you you look at and you say hey i would love to do what they're doing and look and see what they did in the earlier days of their project. Not trying to emulate Coldplay or anything. Yeah. Like you don't have to try and sound like them, but look at what are, what are some of the things that they did early on, especially if the artist is, is from the same region as you going and looking at, Hey, what are some things they did early on that helped them build? And can I build my career in a way that's kind of inspired by the way that they did? I'm from the Midwest and so many artists where I'm from, to them, they go, okay, well, the template for a Midwest band to make it is 21 Pilots <laughs> because they went from the DIY scene and they built something amazing on their own without any kind of real big industry help at the beginning. And then they had a line out the door of managers and agents and labels that want to work with them and they got to choose the best team in the business. And so, so many bands that are from around where I'm from are going, oh, okay, well, at the beginning of 21 Pilots, the singer was getting physical tickets and riding his bike around town to sell them, and he would deliver each ticket to a fan if they bought it, and these things, and they try and do those things. And I mean, maybe that's kind of gimmicky. I'm not saying that you should ride your bike around town to hand deliver tickets unless you like riding your bike and have too much time on your hands. But looking at what are some of these things that that people did earlier on that that really succeeded for them, and there's probably something there. So take notes. Um, Something else is reaching out to some industry people that you respect and maybe you would like to work with someday and just ask them to get coffee and get lunch. You don't have to ask them to work with you, but they are going to have a lot of good advice. If I was one of those people and we were going to get lunch, I'd probably be able to give you a lot more specific advice, like more tailored to your project than what I'm giving here on this podcast, because I'm trying to be kind of more broad and applicable to everybody here but if if you're a rapper in town i might have like more specific information versus if you were a a hardcore band or something so find find those industry people and ask for their time just to learn about them and what they're doing tell them about what you're doing and maybe they have some good advice and also be super like respectful and appreciative of that because they get hit up a lot and so if you have an opportunity to go get lunch with them just being like gracious and making the most out of that I think that's really a great way to learn is find your local experts. They hopefully can mentor you and guide you even briefly. I try to do that a lot with artists who reach out to me to sign them. And maybe I don't think that I'm a good fit and I can't sign their project. But what I can do is take 15 minutes to go, hey, I looked at your your Facebook and Instagram and I saw that you're doing these things and this is a good idea. Keep doing that. Here are a few things that I would change up and have you considered reaching out to this person? I think they'd be good for your project. 
I don't know if that's something that I will like do for the rest of my career, but at least at this point, it's something that I enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. Well, Brandon, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Super glad that we got to talk to you and uh, learned a lot myself. So that's a good episode in my book. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I was I was happy to be part of it. I'm happy that we were able to connect and hopefully some artists got something useful out of here. And one day you'll interview them on the podcast and be like, hey, remember that that agent guy <laughs> would love to find out that that my advice helped somebody in that way. How can people find you on the Internet? or contact you or any of that fun stuff. So my company is Revel Talent Alliance, Revel with a V. Our website is reveltalent.co. And if you go on there, my email address is on it. You can also take a look at all of the cool artists that we work with. Super proud of all of them. Other ways that you can find me on the internet, my social handles are Brandon underscore Hughes underscore. I've got Instagram and Twitter. Sweet. Yeah, dude. Thanks so much for coming on the show. So that's it for my conversation today with Brandon Hughes. Thanks so much to him for coming on the show. If you would like to contact him, I'm sure he would love to hear from you. Go to his website and just send him a little note. Also, real quick before we go, two favors. First, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you just to give us a quick five-star review really helps the show rank higher and also just lets us know that we're doing something cool if you've liked the show secondly if you are an artist who wants to have a lasting music career financial success and also just happiness in general as you're pursuing music would love for you to sign up for our free new music business model workshop we're going to talk about the mindset that you need for success what most artists get wrong about fans and social media what separates the artists that succeed from those who fail and burn out? Also, the business model that's used by some of the most happiest and financially stable artists. And also covering something that you may have heard about on this podcast before, David's hierarchy of leads and how implementing that into your music career has the potential to change your life. So would love for you to sign up for that at musicbusinessmindset.com workshop. But for now, that's it on this episode, and we'll see you next time.